Hello and welcome to episode 152 of the CogniCast, the podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. Well, as I'm recording this in late May 2020, the coronavirus pandemic is still raging across the world. We here at Cognitech would like to urge everyone to take this thing seriously, to take care of yourself, take care of your family, and take care of your community. And together we really will get through this thing. To help you get through this thing, this week on the Cognicast, we have a fascinating conversation recorded a while ago between Gotti and Cliff Click, one of the very deep minds behind the Java Hotspot VM. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Gotti and Cliff and episode 152 of the Cognicast. Got into programming. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Today is March 19th, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Gotti Shaban, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Cliff Click to the show. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for being with us, Cliff. So I know everything is a little bit crazy right now. We have stay-at-home directives in California, New York, but we're going to take our little sanctuary here today for a little while and uh, talk tech. I know you've, you've had a huge influence on the Java ecosystem, which is near to dear, near and dear to uh, Clojure users around the globe. Uh, and it's, it's great to be able to, um, you know, put a, put a voice to that. Um, so welcome. Sure. Thank you. So what you supposed to, yeah, you're supposed to ask me now about art. <laughs> oh damn it <laughs> so one of our traditional questions on the show is to ask our guests would you please relate an experience of art art in any form whether it's music whether it's you know uh something you saw in a in in coffee grounds at the bottom of your cup anything at all yeah sure no problem. So I'm a I'm a going on ten years as a burner, uh, going going to Burning Man ten years in a row. Uh, now a longtime volunteer at Burning Man, um, and I, I curate art cars. Um, so I guess I want to say there there are two pieces of art, uh, and one's very concrete, and that's uh, Machino El Popo that you should go Google the hell out of, and this is a, a twenty foot tall giant metal octopus with uh, arms and legs and limbs that move up and down and eyeballs that pop in and out and teeth that gnash and it throws fireballs out of every possible angle and direction. And, uh, and there's nothing quite like a dance party under the flaming fireballs of El Popo Machino. It is just the most fabulous thing ever. Uh, and it's like this old school construction from some crazy Russian engineer it's all mechanical. It's all you know, uh, big cogs and giant, you know, belt straps and pieces of scrap metal and crutches and crad like that, pushing things up and down and in and out, left and right. Um, and it's the most amazing piece of art I've ever seen. Uh, it, totally fabulous. That sounds psychedelic. I, I think we'll put some pictures of that in the in the show notes. Oh, you absolutely should. Uh, and of course, you can Google videos of it. It's amazing. And I have totally done dance parties underneath the, the fireballs of, of El Popo there. He's, he's fabulous. And, and the other piece of art is uh, Burning Man itself, which is a piece of performance art where these days close to 80,000 people show up from nowhere, build a city, have an alternative culture not based on money about how the world should work how we interact with each other you've never seen a, a society where 80,000 people are there to party stoned and drunk out of their gourd and everyone's just nice to each other <laughs> no one's going batshit crazy bad like it's buying all, all the toilet paper 
for instance. Um, that's a different piece of performance art that we don't need to go to. Um, <laughs> it, it's, uh, and then, uh, you know, at the end of the week, we clean it all up and we leave it as if there was no trace. Um, and that's part of the whole deal. It's you, you see your impact, you understand it because you see the full life cycle. You see the empty desert before, you see the wild crazy, you bring your own, you build up something huge, you have a great time, and then you disassemble what you brought, you pick up every little tiniest piece of trash that you or anyone else let loose, and you restore the place to where it was. And then you walk away and it's there to be used again next year. You know, it's, it's nothing was used up in that process. At least the, the wildness of the world was not used up. So. Those are my two pieces of art. Interesting. They, I think leave no trace is a is a great ethos for our time. And I don't know if that's only possible if it, to leave no trace in the desert. I don't know no, if that's possible it, it, elsewhere. But. Right. So we burned some resources to make Burning Man happen. So other resources were consumed. But the, the mindset's there to point you in the right direction. Hey, this can be done. So we could do better than where we're at. You know, assuming that we're stuck on the planet for a good long time yet, um, finite resources, you know, exponential growth of humans, assuming COVID doesn't sort of cap it. Um, yeah, we got to learn to live with what we got. So some of that is look at the full life cycle of everything. Interesting. I've, I want to go out there one, one year. Never been, but. You got to do it. You got to put it on your bucket. You got you to just got to do it. It's one of those things where you can prep and prep and prep and prep and prep, and you'll never actually do it because you're too busy thinking it's not quite time. I haven't prepped enough, and uh, you just got to do it. This is true of startups too, by the way. Everyone's ready to run a startup. Everyone thinks, no, I need a little more time, a little more prep, a little more time, a little more prep, yeah. and they never fire the gun. Right? They're always getting ready. They're always taking aim, and they never shoot. So that's that's a different story. <laughs> Well, um, so a lot of people know you as somebody who changed the public opinion about uh, jitting in programming languages. As I understand the um, the state of languages before um, 1990s, that jitting really wasn't a thing. That's um, correct. Uh, people did what I would call template style code emission. Um, hell, I was doing that when I was a teenager but that was as far as it went and those languages that use template code gen were basically unrolling an interpreter and they were considered interpreted languages um, and with a better version of an interpreter different version of an interpreter it was an interpreter um, you, you could tell the boundaries between the code emission went one-to-one -one with some sort of boundary in the language there was no blending cross statements per se. There were no, none of that kind of thing going on. And then there was, you know, compiled ahead of time languages like Fortran and C. And C++ was just getting started when I came in. And, and at that time, um, you know, I did a thesis on an alternative version of a compiler IR that I knew would make for a very fast and efficient optimizing compiler. And I tried to get my PhD thesis on that, and my advisor was having nothing to do with that. So I have a, a nice piece of mathematics for my PhD, and uh, and my my giant appendix on the PhD is how, how to do a fast optimizing compiler. <laughs> and uh, Sun said, "Hey, come make Java go fast." And I got out there, and Hotspot was sort of well along as a port. Well, there was an original version. And then there was a, a new port coming along that was uh, taking anamorphics uh, self-interpreter and trying to make a Java thing out of it. And they didn't really have a good code gen story. They had basically got another one of these template style uh, code emitters. Um, and they wanted to do something better. And I said, hell yeah, I can, I can make this go fast. Um, and you know, and I, I succeeded sort of beyond everyone else's wildest <laughs> dreams. I, I guess I kind of knew going in that this was going to work. Um, no one else thought it was going to work. That's I had an amazing amount of pushback from senior compiler engineers all over the place saying, "You can't do that. It's just never going to happen." So, so you had you had pushback from the compiler engineers, and you also had pushback on your PhD. Yeah, 
So oh, I, I, have, I have a line in, in my PhD, I have these little sections and, and there's a little, little fun title line in front of each section, a little quote. And there's definitely a quote in there that basically says, um, you can't tell me, no, I don't believe you, or I'm going to do it anyhow kind of shit, you know, <laughs> like, like go with your gut, not with what somebody tells you to do. A, I always find those, those moments really interesting in history where somebody, somebody sets out to do something new and is shut down or is ignored or is, you know, yeah, or obstacles are put up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> what what, what was some of the rationale? <laughs> oh, because that's what they had experienced all their life. Yeah. Right. So, so as a 40 something compiler guy, here's this 20 something kid coming along saying, Hey, I'm going to write this optimizing compiler that you worked on for 20 years and I'm going to make it. So it's a hundred times faster in terms of code generation. You're like, ah, you can't do that. But of course I'd come from a different direction. I'd come from the, the land of, you know, I'm going to emit code as a young teenager directly. So what the hell is doing code emission at age 15? But that's, you know, that's my life. Um, and, as a consequence, I understood code and understood the, the the direct machine, touching how the direct machine worked. And I knew I could just scribble bits into RAM and run them because I had been doing that already in, in language called Forth. I had, had an upgraded version of Forth that I had implemented completely from scratch. Forth's a totally trivial language. It's a fun, if you're doing languages for the first time ever, start with Forth as a way to go. Okay, fine. Um, and then, in, you know, at Rice, at my PhD thesis, I learned all about optimizing compiler theory. And somewhere in there, I started down this path of, uh, you know, here's SSA on steroids for a compiler IR, and it lets me do all these fabulous optimizations sort of very directly. And and then uh, from 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 the optimized SSA graph, I can emit code just directly, and so, I know I can run it directly. And that was it. I was like, oh, this will work. Could you explain to our our uh, listeners what SSA is and how what oh, how okay, fundamental fine. it is to uh, yeah to right. compilers? So so yeah, I don't know where to start for history or start from the mathematics. So, just, so let's go history. Right, just assume they're not 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 a bunch of mathematical backgrounds. I'm gonna start from history. So prior to SSA, um, compilers were designed by uh, basically taking your high level language, transliterating it as directly as possible to some sort of virtual machine code. So say virtual wasn't a real machine code. Um, and and, then, and the, the, this was your intermediate representation. It wasn't machine code yet, but it looked a lot like machine code that had like add, subtract, multiply, divide, loads and stores, call, return, whatever manipulators you needed to have in the language, all written out as what called tuples, which is basically the op code and the, the left register, right register, which are usually symbolic names, program variable names. Um, and then you ran it through pass after pass after pass to clean it up, to get rid of dead code, to get rid of common sub-expressions. Like all array math expands into index times a scale plus an offset. So you get a bazillion duplicated array index math operations you can go clean up. And then you had to do register allocation because you had all these virtual names. So, so there's a bunch of stuff happened there. Uh, and that was sort of the state of the world and the, the, the strength was it was easy to conceptualize it and easy to transliterate. And the difficulty was it was hard to optimize because you're basically trying to optimize machine code more or less directly. Um, and then this gets into the mathematics where the, the point at which you want to make a change and the point where somebody's impacted by the change are far removed in your IR, in, in your set of assembly instructions. Somewhere over here, I have a load and over there, I have another load. I want to common them up, and I have some use somewhere else, or some set of uses they're going to take from the load. But I have to combine the registers the two loads are using into one register to common them up. And the uses somewhere else all have to agree to use the same set of registers. So it becomes a complicated problem to go find all these things and rename them. And there's all these the, uh, theses and PhDs and, and you know, compiler courses on how to do this, called this data flow stuff. Fine. SSA basically like gutted that. Um, SSA is, and here I'm gonna to go to what I use or view SSA as, which is an intuitive thing that lets you directly manipulate program semantics. It's a graph. It's a graph semantic version of your program. And as a graph, it has nodes and edges, okay? Right. The nodes are the opcodes, the add, subtract, the load, the store. The edges are the flow of the data or if you will, the names of variables. So if I have a load over here, 
and I have a use somewhere else, they're connected by an edge. And I don't need a variable name. The edge is the variable name. It's so as have good as the variable name. Right. It, it, it is the variable name. Yeah. Um, and in particular, to the edge can be in, in, in hotspots SSA form. This is part of the thesis for fast versions of things. That edge is literally only a pointer from the use site to the death. That is the edge, a single C++ pointer, and that contains all the information I need to carry a, a, a use def edge. So if I change a load, the guy who points at it already changed his variable name because he just followed the pointer and he was done. And I didn't have to actually change the use at all. So there's a little bit more to it that makes life complicated. You have to talk about fee functions at some point. Um, I guess I'll do that now because that's the last sort of major thing. And that's if I have control flow um, in, in my little example here, where I have two different loads. Suppose they're on different sides of an if statement. Um, somewhere there's a use where they're using the same variable. In SSA form, you put a fee function in at a merge in control flow. And the fee function merges the data flow, the same as two basic blocks and a compiler merge control flow. Got you. I think a. I'm We'll definitely drop a diagram in the uh, in the show notes, but uh, but that that makes sense intuitively. That um, you know, in at least in enclosure, if you have a let binding, and the let is bound from an expression that ha has a conditional in it, that would that would create a a fee node, right? As soon as you have a conditional, you have a fee node. Yeah, and if you change the let binding, the consumer of the let points to the let to get that value somehow in your language semantics. An SSA form, that pointer is directly at the machine hardware level, a direct pointer. Interesting. So instead of tuples, which I have an opcode and a set of variable names, I end up with tuples and have an opcode and a set of pointers to other tuples. Mm. And now the implementation is a graph in memory as well as being a graph sort of semantically. And now you do optimizations on a graph form, and a lot of algorithms which had been in squared become incremental. Um, they become linear over the whole program graph, but incremental individually. As soon as they're incremental individually, you get to this format where you can uh, uh, sort of have a work list that just incrementally makes a graph change and then looks at the neighbors to see if that cascadingly triggers another graph change. Um, and that's the core optimizer in Hotspot. That's the main thing. The, the, the JIT starts by reading bytecodes and translating into SSA form in a stupid one-pass kind of shape. And then in graph form, he does a big work list algorithm. He just takes a, a node, makes a mutation, like an add of zero. You drop the zero, and things like that. Makes a mutation, and then puts the neighbors on the work list and checks them for mutations. And you know, lather, rinse, repeat until you run out of things to go do. That's the major optimization. Interesting. So, so, so the innovation of SSA. Not only does it, so it, it enables all these optimizations. It makes them simpler. It makes them faster. But you yeah. also you say there's some engineering challenges in making the SSA representation performant itself too. Um, you, you could make it not performant if you try hard. <laughs> It's the other way around. I found it very easy to make it performant. Hmm. Um, and, and this is just goes to the programming style that I've always adhered to all my life, and that's just sort of minimalist. Um, I, I like to say, I, I keep appending the name Shannon's Law to this, but it's not, um, although it's something related to thinkings that Shannon came up with. And that's there's a minimal amount of information you need to represent something. And after that, you have some sort of duplication going on. And you know, all the compression algorithms have the minimum size they can compress to because there's so much redundancy and then you're done and you can't get rid of the non-redundant parts. So same thinking applied to all data structures in every program I ever do, and in particular compilers. What is the minimal amount of information I need here to sort of get the job done? And then maybe I back off a tiny bit for ease of use or clarity of expression. But if you start with a minimal amount, you usually have cut out so much complexity that it gets simpler, it gets smaller, and now it's a lot faster and a lot easier. So this is all constant factors, but it's big constant factors. Uh, you know, five and 10x constant factors. 
And of course the easiness turns into, I have time to go do other things that are useful, other better algorithms for other parts of the code or performance elsewhere um, yeah. that come about because your program's just smaller and simpler. And you have a finite time budget to, to do to do all right. this stuff. Right, you, you have a life to go live and so you, you can't, right. We yeah. um we we have a a library called Core Async in in the Closure ecosystem and it does uh it does like lightweight um coroutines and one of the things it needs to do is to translate straight line code into um, a state machine and it does that by first going through SSA format so that uh, um, it's right. a it's a source to source source um, yeah translation but uh, yeah. You can... I, I, the hotspot JIT goes in SSA form and never comes out. It stays SSA form right on down the line until it emits code at the end. Interesting. That is the IR. Interesting. So speaking of all these optimizations, I see you've been busy at work in a GitHub repo that gets a blast of commits uh, every once in it a while. It actually gets frequent commits on branches, <laughs> and every now and then I roll a branch out. So you're looking at master, and from master, there's probably a closure branch, and from closures, there's probably a forward branch. And if you chain them all together, you'll see that there's a steady series of commits. And then every now and then, they get rolled up, and you see them all appear in master. But I've been very steadily making progress. Interesting. So, so what is AA? So AA is this programming language. Um, and that, I, that that's the one that I wish I'd had so many years ago, right? So I've always spent all my life implementing somebody else's programming language. And I finally decided, okay, I'm gonna fucking implement my own. <laughs> and you know, what, what can I do with it and what do I want? So a couple things come out of that. Um, I, I'm always a performance guy. So I have to be able to translate everything down to the bare metal. There has to be a way to get raw machine performance out near the end, no matter what. Um, I like type safety. I like, you know, strong types for weak minds. Okay, I'll claim I have a weak mind. I, I'm highly prolific. I do all kinds of amazing shit, but I find strong typing helps. So I want my strong typing, so strongly typed. Um, I like the safety I got out of Java, because um, having lived in the C world to go build Java, you know, I, I, I'm hardcore C, C++ programmer, and the safety bits are good. So, you know, full program safety, except if you absolutely demand to take off the training wheels, I'll let you, you know, blow your foot off. But this is the Rust style mentality. You can say, okay, and here I, here I do a bad thing and then, you know, undo that later and say, okay, I'm stopped doing bad things. And that's fine. Um, I want type inferencing because I know I can do it. Uh, you know, looking at uh, the, the amount of types that I type in Java um, and, and, you know, in C, you don't have to type so many types, but that's because it's not type safe at all. And it just like and says, hey, okay, fine. You said this and it's that and whatever. Uh, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, right. Um, hope you know what you're doing, by the way. So fine. Which, you know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Uh, and then Java says, hey, what the hell type you want here and here and here and here and here? Mm. And why do I have to say X is an instance of a foo and immediately afterwards say cast foo X to foo, right? So there's the class foo named twice in a row. Every time I use instance of 100% guarantee there's a cast following to go do something with it. And it's just redundancies everywhere. Okay. So, uh, you know, full type inferencing, drop all of them types, I'll figure them out. But you might want types, so you can add them in. That's optional, that's, that's good. But if you don't want to name a type, I'll figure it out. Um, I like first class functional programming. Um, having done that also in my you know, early days, uh, not as early as high school, but in uh, early college days, I did a lot with scheme. Um, and, and, you know, real closures, right? So then later in life here, I've done a lot of stuff with JavaScript doing, you know, web fronting things and real closures are really useful. There's good shit to do with them. So how, how do you distinguish real closures from let's say Java lambdas? I, I can update variables in a closure, in the closure and then, you know, have it outlive the lifetime of the function that made it. Oh, so things, Up, things on the... So uh, th things on the outside that you're closing over. Yeah, yeah, right. Th 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 things in, mm -hmm. yes, th things that you're closing over, you, you hand the, the function pointer away and then somebody else can go ask the function pointer to go update things. 
So this is the, the root building block. You can build uh, coroutines and you can build all kinds of uh, generator things with it. Um, there's a bunch of other fun stuff that you watch the, the JavaScript guys do from first principles, which I got from, you know, scheme, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Oh, yeah, of course, you can do module systems with it. Oh, yeah, of course, you can do alternative class hierarchies with it. Of course, you could do all this kind of shit with it. Okay, yeah, it's pretty damn useful. Um, it's commonly assumed to be not performant, but I think there's a, 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 a place I'm going with it anyhow where, you know, it's pay as you go. If you're not going to use a closure as a closure, mm -hmm. I am totally going to spot that and say, hey, you know, stack allocation, uh, you know, stack lifetime and or in, in register and variable things and you get the same performance you get out of C code. But if you're going to use it as a closure, there's a malloc on the heap and, uh, you know, some, some lifetime got generated and it has to be garbage collected or otherwise managed. lifetime managed. Yeah. And that's. Yeah. That's just the decision the compiler observes your usage pattern and picks it left or right. So, so what's the target um, emission Me. backend for? <laughs> well, what's the backend? The yeah, backend. The backend. The backend back back is. I don't have a backend yet. I'm still doing uh, language design and spec. Um, but the backend will be whatever the hell I want because I can do a backend. So I'll probably start with a Java backend because it's handy, it's convenient. I probably will do a JavaScript backend or WebAssembly because I do some front end work and I, you know, type flow or flow as a typing system over JavaScript is kind of nice and mm -hmm. JavaScript has its uses. And then you add Redux for state management and MobX and whatever else. And life got complicated, but it was a better way to code. Uh, asynchronous flows out of front ends. Um, but it's a hodgepodge, a freaking hodgepodge mess. So I, isn't know, there a better way? This is the first time I've ever talked to you, but one of the things that is surprising me the most is I never thought you would ever mention Redux. That, that... <laughs> <laughs> so, so everyone says, it's Cliff, he's the Java guy. Well, I actually have coded a lot in Java now, but of course, 20 years ago, there was no Java, so I did a lot of C code. But prior to C and C++, I did Fortran and tons of assembly and Forth, I mentioned, and Scheme and Lispy things and other alternative languages. And I have messed with them since. And then I've done front end work and I've done embedded work and I've done whatever. So I have a very broad language background and I've been coding in different domains and aspects for more than 40 years, right? So it's not just Cliff does Java and Cliff does C. Cliff does a whole ton of shit. Yeah, I mean, f forgive me. I mean, I, 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 I think the, the only thing that rivals the, the complexity of something like Hotspot, some some big virtual machine, um, to me is is the f the front end is an unending source of complexity, and and there have been some, some recent efforts that to to tame that, and I think Redux is, is one of them. Um, but the, those those things yeah. are on the same complexity scale to, to me. <laughs> I, I think it's well, it's not fair. I, I think the code generator piece of that is interestingly complicated, but other aspects in my mind they make different design decisions. But I don't know if they're maybe they're close. I I, I don't know. Like the garbage collection games going on in Hotspot are pretty freaking amazing, and the 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 web guys, the browser guys have different garbage collection issues, which can be often solved in a much more straightforward way. They don't have concurrent GC, but they have time space GC issues. Mm. You want a GC during the, during the display refresh cycle, right? So, so you want to have an incremental fast short time, but you don't have multiple threads mutating the heap concurrently. And so you don't have to do a concurrent GC. You mm. can, and some do, but it's not, required by the way that things set up. Not so with Java. You either stop all threads, classic stop the world, or now you have concurrent GC. And those are orders of magnitude more difficult than a stop the world parallel. You know, stop the world single thread is one level of difficulty. You could almost do that in the browser, not quite. Stop the world parallel adds parallelism, but only in its own domain. It's mm -hmm. completely separate from the mutators kind of what you get out of the, the Java side, the JavaScript side, where you can stop one thread and prevent the callbacks from happening while you change, but you have a budget, so you have to be done. So you want to do a half, so you do an incremental step. 
go concurrent and you go incremental and you go parallel and suddenly your orders and orders of magnitude more complicated. So I, I don't know. Interesting. So let's not let's not let's not do what, what do you call it? waving at whose problems more difficult here, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're both got hard problems. Okay, fine. Um, I, I like the the I terminology think, I I... mutator for uh, for the user space program from. Uh, that's from a very the... old. It's a very old, and I did not come up with it. That's a very old term. Yeah, yeah. That's a. It's a. Yeah. It's just a great piece of. Uh, okay. Piece of yeah. jargon. Um, I've been working on a uh, a little Java utility that does uh, content based chunking of files, and it it'll it'll do this rolling hash across the file, and every time the hash hits a magic value, it chunks the file up. Um, so you could do deduplication de and stuff like that. But the way I've been testing it is having a big big byte buffer that I that I do the chunking over, and then I do random acts of violence to the um, to the byte buffer and make sure I have a minimal amount of um, different uh, like deltas between the two uh, between the two chunk passes but anyway your the terminology mutator is is a <laughs> it's fun um, right yeah, from the garbage collection's point of view there's some other magic thing that's mutating the shape yeah. of the heap and they has to go discover all the places where it's been changed because that's where interesting garbage collection work happens i saw right. this uh there was a a post that john rose made to the um one of the hotspot mailing lists, I think, but uh, but it had the phrase "assignment as a as an act of violence." And I've always yep. I've always enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, you know the functional guys will will start out by saying you don't need assignment, and you know silence is act of violence. And of course, the the bare hardware only does assignment, so there's a there's a discontinuity yeah. <laughs> between between the, you know the hardware we have and the language you want to design, right? And, and a lot of performance comes around from, uh, you know, obviously mechanical sympathy, uh, aligning with the fact that the hardware does only assignments yeah. and has caches. Both of those together lead to orders of magnitude and performance. The, like and the, phys the physical realities that you the have. The physical realities. Yeah, yeah. Live with yeah. the physical realities. It's all fun to say, hey, I'm writing enclosure. Um, until you need to get it 10x faster or 10x less latency. And then like, uh, now what? Okay, well now you have to realize that that's not what the hardware's doing. So the hardware's jumping through hoops to make closure work. <laughs> ah, what can I do to make the hardware not jump through hoops? And that turns into, you know, what you want at a different styles of programming. So I have side effects in AA <laughs> and everything's strongly typed as well. Um, so if you don't have a back end, what, how are you testing it now? What do you, what, what's the uh, oh, experience? I'm doing, um, uh, I'm doing. Um, I'm just doing typing analysis, and and uh, you know I have a few hundreds of uh, expressions that I'm running typings over, and I know the type of the result that I should get back out. So I'm verifying that I can type the following kinds of things. Gotcha. Um, so you know it's a C C like language for expressions. So you can write those those type easily. Um, but when you get to functions, there's a there's a sort of a different syntax. Um, all my functions are anonymous. There are no not anonymous functions. Uh, and, but you can assign a function to a, a variable, and so that's the usual way you would make uh, a function. Uh, you know, a classic function in a C or Java world, you, you just assign to a variable. To name it, yeah. To name it, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I have uh, you know a full type inference, so I have to do recursive types. Uh, so I can infer shit like trees and linked lists sort of directly along with straight out of functions. So I have functions that walk linked lists and I'll tell you this is a function that's walking a linked list that's part of the, the automatic type inference. Um, there, there's, you know, very minimal syntax going on here. I don't know if I've overshot the minimal mark, but it turns out you can basically have no keywords at all. Um, I effectively have no keywords. Um, and then you know, after that, it go into the syntax. You go pull up AA and look at some of the examples to see what's going on there. Uh, I have a bunch of other rules I like. I like the minimal syntax is one of them. Um, I can wrap any expression in curly braces and it becomes a function. 
just straight up a thunk with no args. It's a nice way to change the execution time of a function that you wanted to like, oops, I wrote some code, but I want to stall it because yeah. I'm going to debug for a while and come around. So I'll just thunk it. I see. But you, and um, you, you pay per use or you, you yeah, it's all, yeah, it's all pay per use kind of stuff. So it's one of the, the fun things you would see is you have this if def macros, which means I have a if def windows, if def Darwin, if def Linux. And then the if defs I have uh, expressions which are uh, not syntactically correct in the other if defs because they have the wrong kind of arguments to function calls, for instance, because people have changed, you know, what, what the call args are to read takes an optional extra parameter or not for a security mode or whatever the hell. And, and what I've done is said, if you're dead, then I can, as long as I can survive the parsing, I don't care if you're semantically incorrect. Dead code is always semantically correct. And so uh, I, I can, live with any number of sort of incorrectly typed expressions in code uh, as long as you don't ever bother to execute it. But it is the rule that it will be typed before it executes. So I, I, I prove that your code will execute if it's incorrectly typed. Um, and if you decide to you know, write an expression that uses the incorrectly typed code, the new expression combined with the old one will together not type because they'll say, wow, well, you're about to go run this thing that you, know, you hadn't run before and it's not correct, so you can't actually run it. So it's it's a you know it's a desire to have a type safe macros for the 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 low for level OS you. hardware guys. Yeah, I see, I see. Yeah, I think a lot a lot of uh, JavaScript engines do this the whole lazy parse kind of. Oh, you, totally, totally. Yes, and that's that's totally performance in driven by uh, you know the the internet experience. <clears throat> My code's coming over this thin pipe and arriving at the CPU where it's a thousand times faster than the network. Um, I want to begin executing as fast as I can. So I execute what I can, but if I see, you know, code that no one's calling yet, I, I don't want to do much with it because I want to get to the meat of what I can do. So I'll just throw that code off to the side and then, you know, grab the next set of bytes in and start doing something with them. And if it turns out you're going to execute this code that I pulled in, I'll then begin to type it and turn it into IR and discover that I can, can or can't execute it or whatever. Totally do the lazy thing to the max. Uh, a very much similar mindset. There's a there's a lot of um, at, at least in the closure community. There's a lot of um, little command line utilities that are being um, uh, made and compiled through Graal's native image, um, which, um, as you know, it's a it's an ahead of time closed uh, mm -hmm. uh, closed world assumption, and it'll you know. Uh, analyze your code and use like 15 gigs of heap and figure out what's going on and then it'll give you a binary back um, but do you find that there's a tension between um, sort of get get things running fast uh, or initial startup um, code gen versus um, you know longer yeah. uh, longer lived yeah. programs well yeah that that was that was the that was inherent. Yeah, that was the giant pushback I got when I started doing you know the JIT for Hotspot years ago. You can't wait on the compiler; it'll take forever, right? You can't JIT at runtime. You can't. No one used the word JIT back then, by the way. So you can't compile code at runtime. You know, it'll take forever. Um, <laughs> so so there was a there was a first pass to get you going, and that was the interpreter. Then there had been a template style generator. And I came in with a thing that, you know, for a while there was your choice of the redo of the template generator called the client compiler and the server compiler. Mm. And, uh, and I was sort of very sort of politically naive and very uh, honest and forthright with my opinions, um, which didn't sit well with a class of people who decided that I was, uh, you know, an asshole. And I was just honestly myself, never with an ounce of evil intent. But if I thought, if I saw something, I thought it was stupid, I would tell you it was stupid and why? Very short order. This is dumb, it'll never work because boom. And I would just lay it out. Ba -da 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 -da. 
and then I'd move on. And you know that that didn't sit well. So there were some people who said, "No, oh, we're gonna do the client compiler." And so they ran off and did the client compiler. And I looked and said, "You know, I've done that kind of thing, and you'll not ever get to hotspots peak performance, but you'll get within thirty percent, which is pretty much where they they topped out at." Um, and that was the dichotomy for a long time. You had to pick one. I didn't play politics well, so Sun went with the client compiler as the default for a long time, although there was screaming from the paying clients of the, you know, the, the, the people who bought Spark hardware screamed a lot because I was much faster. I was 50% faster on Spark chips and, you know, 30% faster on x86. And what the hell, why are we, why is this the default? That eventually changed. Uh, uh, years later, it's all water on the bridge now, I guess. And the same guys who did that VM decided eventually that, you know, what I was doing in Hotspot with this SSA everywhere, um, which by the way, it has a name called Sea of Nodes. And you can you can go Google Sea of Nodes and come up with some minimal amount of papers. They decided they would take that when they redid. They wanted to redo C2. And honestly, C2 is, you know, now 25 years old. Hmm. And I, I, I've been saying for a long time that, you know, optimized compilers have a lifetime of about 20 years. So it's, you know, it's been time. Um, the Grawl guys are still playing catch up. They've had a decade. They're still playing catch up with C2. Um, they're very close. Uh, there's definitely some things where they win. There's definitely some things where they lose. There's definitely a breadth of stuff where you're unreliably performant. Like they have potholes they run into because they didn't handle mm. this case or that case. And Hotspot had all those potholes, you know, ironed out decades ago. Um, so it hasn't changed who's the default compiler. So it's C2 is still the default. And I think that's still a correct decision. Although I wouldn't be surprised if someday it does change and it will be, you know, it, it could be a correct decision at some future point. Um, correct decision to change in terms of for the java community as a whole to change the default compiler from c2 to grawl is the obvious you know the obvious, the obvious successor yeah yeah um but i think Grawl's not quite there yet for the generic large java community um there are some specific instances where Grawl is better on escape analysis for instance um i know some of the c2 work is still headed in that direction that might eventually do it as well and that might not so i don't know if the, you know if, the, if those are catch up going to pass or not you know, I, I watched a talk that you gave about, you know, what I would do, or basically... Different, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, what I would do different if I were to do this yeah. all again. One thing you said was uh, you would not do another VM in an unsafe yeah. language. Yeah, basically. Yeah, and, yeah. And is that... C++ was sort of a, a nightmare on... not night, Until we learned how to use it to build a VM, it was kind of a nightmare. There was a set of policies of how you dealt with things that were not language enforceable by any means that were necessary to have a long-term ability to build and maintain a VM. In, in particular, you know, garbage collection uh, in the language. So C, C++ is implementing the garbage collector, but it's also implementing a lot of other things that deal with garbage collection or with garbage collected languages or interact and that tension meant that the C++ had to be aware of how the garbage collector that it itself was implementing was dealing with pointers. Mm. When it would otherwise be dealing with just C structs that happened to also be Java structs because you had to do low level manipulations <clears throat> as part of the VM work. And so that, that line of crossing where C code was touching Java objects was sort of very deep in, is very deep in hotspot and also the the C++ garbage collector would then do horrible things to the C++ not pointer safe you know code that was manipulating Java objects hmm. and that was getting that right was a real pain in the neck um, if I did that again I would start from a different place and in particular, C2 is a giant, uh, a giant complicated piece of code, does not really need to be written in C. Um, there are some low-level things you can't do in Java that a C2 does take advantage of, but another language that could be type safe, I'm talking about AA, but there are other people who fall in this category, could do the same things, get the same performance out for the same reason, fine. Hmm. Um, and, but, and that would get that would get C2 out of C code 
And that's exactly what Grawl did. They, they took C2 style and said, we're not doing it in C anymore. We're going to do it in Java-like. But, it, but it's not just a matter of safety. It's about a, a matter of expressivity and um, understandability the, the, or malleability? Yeah, well, all of the above, right? Uh, yeah. you know, how, how fast can I make forward progress? Well, if I have to dance the dance among eggshells all the time, you know, it slows me down. Um, you know, what is, what is the path to rapid forward progress? Some of it's expressibility, some of it's safety, right? Why do you have tests everywhere? Why, what's the whole deal with test-driven development? Okay, well, the tests don't tell you what is right, what is wrong, but they help you make faster forward progress because they tell you what your contract, what you think your contract is and whether or not you're meeting the contract you think you have, hmm. right? Once you decide you like the contract, you bake it into the tests and then you code to your heart's content and the tests tell you if you're failing to meet the contract, at least that's what you hope. Hmm. If you've got the test set up right, then that's the actuality and that lets you code faster. I can take a big bite to make a big forward progress of some horrible piece of code that was legacy, even of a year ago legacy, because the tests will back me up. They got my back, right? And that's the joy and the promise and the progress of this kind of testing. So where do you get forward progress? Well, if every time I talk about the this pointer in C++ code, sometimes it's a C object on the C heap and sometimes the Java object in the Java heap. And if it's a Java object and I ever take a safe point in any nested function call, it may move and my this pointer and C changes, right? If the C compiler doesn't know that it changes because that's not part of the language semantics, right? Sure. How, what's the coding style that lets me survive that? Okay, that's a, that was a pain in the neck. Um, certainly C2 didn't have to be in that sandbox and getting it out was, is a good thing. Chunks of the runtime had to be in that sandbox and you're just stuck. You know, Rust writing itself in Rust admits up front that and here, here's the place where we break the sandbox rules. Right. But we make it known to the compiler that this is the kind of rule change that's happening and they can express it. So when you come back out of the, the danger zone, the compiler knows what he can and can't trust. And he has to rebuild his state, maybe reloading from memory all these variables that may have been crushed. Right. Do you think, uh, well, I mean, People who make languages have various motivations, rationales, and they're all they're all over the map. Sometimes, you know, you're you're making something for yourself. Sometimes you're just exploring. Um, to that end, what what do you think are the unsolved sort of problems of our time, uh, or the modern problems that people of maybe all languages are are experiencing? Um, I'm not saying uh, are, are you addressing these in in AA, but what do you think are like some open problems for uh, for in this in this ballpark? Yeah. Okay. So, the, you know, you can go Google this pile; they're all over the map. There's plenty. So, are exceptions exceptional? Hmm. What's it mean to have exceptions? Um, if I make them easy, convenient, is it actually exceptional? You know, and but then they're slower in hell, like Java. Oh, you get a stack trace. It, I had to crawl the stack. It's very expensive. So yeah. exceptions are expensive to generate. They're actually cheap to throw, and the JIT will will optimize the hell out of the throw path. But to build one in the first place, that's expensive. Um, but then there's a whole. What am I doing with an exception? Because the usual story is the exception happens because somebody somewhere didn't know how to handle it. And I have seen so many places where people caught an exception, didn't know how to handle what they caught, so they logged it, rethrew it as a plain exception, so they didn't have to deal with catching it later in life, right? <laughs> and, and and did nothing useful, and often threw away the stack trace and built a new one when they logged rethrew. So it was a total net loser of information, and you get these giant nested stack traces, but you lost the core one at the base that told you what the hell's going on, and the guy who caught didn't have anything to do, right? He, he had no purpose in life to catch because he couldn't deal with it at that level anyhow. So you know, there's, a, there's a, a right way in my head to deal with exceptional conditions, and, and you need to define up front why you're throwing an exception and why you would catch an exception. And the only reason to catch an exception is I'm going to totally recover the situation. Mm. 
because I have nothing else I can do with the exceptions coming along. The, the state below me up. I'm only guaranteed the basic language guarantees because I don't know where and when the exception happened. And so I can't trust what's underneath me. If I can clean that up completely, then I can. And then I can catch this exception. And if I cannot clean it up, com clean it up completely, I shall not catch this exception. I shall not. That is like the wrong thing to do. So I, I, I'm kind of headed toward a zone of, I want to have exceptions be exceptional, that if you throw them, um, the guy, the, no one can catch them. You can add some information if they pass by you hmm. to say, oh, and also I know something about what I was doing when this exception came around, but I can't fix it. Right. Or I'm going to catch it. And if I'm going to catch it, I cannot rethrow it. I must fix it entirely. And I'm done. Right. This this is a different. Yeah. That first scenario is diagnostic. And there's not really great diagnostics. Yeah. In, in the, the stack trace is typically a great diagnostic. The full stack trace yeah. is a great diagnostic. Right. Somebody knows what the leaf problem is if you can find the right owner of the code. But if you threw away the leaf piece and printed something else, you lost information, but maybe you wanted the print to say, I was here at the time the exception happened. And so you might want to add a little bit of print, add a string, hey, something else, and hey, and hey, and hey, as you go up the stack trace, as you go, as you unroll. But when the guy catches it, if he doesn't care for your diagnostic, he doesn't. But he, if he catches it, he completely repair. That's hmm. his job. And that typically means he is in a zone where he is in an infinite repeating loop doing same similar things and he's going to take what you just what he just caught and say that attempt failed i will now try again of some kind so the obvious big example is i hit control c in an old school c program and i went to the os the os completely caught completely unwound that process reclaimed all that memory and threw me back at a command line where i can run it again as a user so that's the biggest repeat loop here right, right. but if i have a web server that's serving pages and my somebody crashed and when it tried to serve that web page, I can completely catch, throw this request away and blow it off and hand you back a 404 and I'm ready to go as a web server and you can throw another request at me and nothing, nothing broke. Sure. So exceptions, that's- uh... That's one of them. So yeah. that, that's, a, that's a big one. Um, you know, there, there's a tension between Rust and Java here between uh, uh, a well-behaving malloc-free and garbage collection, and they're both there's both uses in the world for both. Um, the 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 garbage collection just lets you run faster in terms of generating, getting code out there, making something work. It's just a better way to go make complicated things work. Everyone loves garbage collection for that reason. Okay, fine. There are times when you have to touch low-level memory. And there are sort of a couple of cases here, and some of them impact Java guys way more directly than they ever know. So the easy ones are, I'm touching hardware because I'm writing a AAA shooter, and I need to go scribble on the graphics card memory. Fine. So there's, you know, I'm writing a, a, an operating system. I have these custom registers doing custom shit. It's memory mapped. I'm going to scribble on the network buffers, whatever, right? All the high-frequency traders like to go diddle the network buffers directly because they want to do byte by byte. What the hell am I doing as the next byte shows up thing? Fine. So there's that version. There's, um, you know, funny hardware instructions that I'd love to use that require like alignment or special other memory features. You can't get alignment out of Java code. So you can't use SSE directly yourself. So you can't write mm. a video codec in Java because you can't get cache line aligned bits out of anybody. And if you could, you you should. I mean, you you, it ought to, you could write your codec in Java, but you can't. So it was fine. Well, they just uh, dropped the the JEP for vector API a couple days right. ago. Yeah. So that's exciting. Maybe it comes, right? Maybe yeah. it shows up. But it's, it's been 20 years, right? So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not holding my breath. Okay. The last thing is um, garbage collection recycles memory at the rate of once every full generation, which is generally larger than all your caches combined. So if you're streaming data through and you're doing manipulations on large streaming data and you allocate per something you stream in, you typically flood your cache with new objects, one per say byte that you read from the, the wire. 
And that's an endless cash miss, 100% guaranteed endless cash miss. Switching to an object pooling kind of model can get you 5x speed ups, like 5 to 10x speed ups. And I can totally demonstrate this in pure Java code. Single threaded, flat performance, pure Java, 5 to 10x speed ups. And I do it all the time when doing like big data. Anybody doing anything with big data, I want to do machine learning on it, but I just want to like gather a bunch of facts. Give me min, max, mean, standard deviation, outliers. Uh, uh, do a, a little bit of a, of a you know a join and a split kind of thing. Uh, find all the products in this tick stream from the stock market. It's terabytes in size, and tell me how many sales, how many buys and sells, how many order events happen, how many this, how many blah 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 blah. Whatever it's going to be. I need to do something with it, but not too complicated. If I do this in an object pooling mindset where I recycle the memory I'm using to do the computations, I can be 5x faster very easily. On single threaded code running data that's much larger than my caches. As soon as I go parallel, that scales as well. So, so there's, a, there's uses for memory here that we haven't worked the tension out of that need to get sorted on. You think it's missing abstractions or, I mean, I think most people don't do the object pooling first because it's hard, right? Okay. So it turns out that it's not <laughs> if you at least have some, some thinking about what the hell you're doing. I, I do, I teach a class on this, right? In two hours, I step you through a 5X speed up streaming through a couple gigabytes of data. Um, and I claim that I only make small incremental steps along the way and end up with something that is easy to understand, easy to read, but it separates out the data load path from the business logic path. Hmm. And then the end result is I do my business logic using a very similar looking, looks like Java code. It's a little stylistic in a slightly different way, but it looks like Java code in all the right ways. And I could be very, very complicated there and still look like Java code in all the right ways. And I get a 5X speed up, which is big enough that I, I care. You know, it's, it's sure. not, not a trivial speed up. So that's an, that's an interesting class. You you teach a class on I, doing that. Yeah, I, I, I've done a bunch of classes. That's one of them. Yeah, right. That's, that's a, a that's like two idea. hours. Uh, you know, get performance out of uh, understanding your low level hardware. <laughs> so I step people through caches and the difference in performance and where it goes and why, and then I start out. Okay, here's this big data. It's much bigger than your cache. I'm going to read it in. I'm going to do this little bit of math on it, a little bit of algebra, a little bit of dorking around. It runs at this kind of a speed. Okay, what'd you do to speed it up? And you ask them, step them through, right? No one ever, ever says, oh, change how you go allocate it. Because I say, buffered reader dot read line. Hmm. Give me a line. String split it on commas. Okay, now I have 70 columns. Pick out the following columns and do my math and blah, blah, blah. As soon as you said buffered reader dot read line, you lost. Because that turned it into a string. And every byte you read in became two more bytes of string from mm -hmm. one byte. Those bytes then died at the very next read line. So those two bytes had to get written back out of your cache. So every byte that you read in, you read in two more bytes of string, of dead empty string memory and wrote out two bytes. So you had four bytes of trash for every byte of payload. <clears throat> and you do a string split and you double that again, plus headers. Two more bytes. Plus headers is always the kicker, eh? Two, two more. <laughs> the headers aren't big. The header, headers here add like 10%. The buffered read line is four to one, five to mm -hmm. one, and the string split is double that. So now you're 10 to one and the headers make it 15 to one or, or 14 to one. Getting rid of those allocations, that's where all your performance goes. And then to do that, you have to start by not saying buffered reader dot read line. It is the, it, this is a failure in the Java library. As your default, go give me a string off of a giant file that adds this giant overhead. There is another version that I hand you that's basically looks just like buffered reader read line, but it doesn't make a new string object. It hands you a recyclable, reusable stir object that's not immutable. It doesn't mutate during its lifetime, which is one per iteration in the loop that I'm reading the line in, hmm. but it iterates, but it mutates thereafter. I just changed the offset to point to a different point in the buffered in the in the you know in the buffer reader. So you still have a standard buffered reader, but you don't say read line. And there is no alternative API to getting those bytes out that doesn't start with read line. <laughs> doesn't start with a string. So that's you know stupid. There's, there's your 30 second view. There's a thing to get large performance gains out of that.
Well, um, I think we should uh, we should probably wrap up. And uh, as our customary final question, uh, we ask you to impart some advice on our listeners. Um, okay, could be, could be anything. Okay, yeah, right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go left uh, left you know the other direction hard here. Um, so I teach a course on an I course class whatever on on self awareness for introverts. So let me let me propose, let me theorize some significant fraction of your listeners are fairly hardcore introverts, uh, conflict avoiders, um, you know, you know, people who may be very good technically, but are not necessarily very good in a verbal situation, verbal fight. Um, and let me let me further propose that there's some fraction who upon receiving something that they take as a attack upon their ego say your code sucks but my code is my life it's how i make my income and my money it's my goodness in the world that i bring society as soon as you say my code sucks you say i suck so as soon as somebody says your code sucks you're doing emotional processing and you maybe have trouble coming up with words and in your silence while you're like reeling from the shock. No, he didn't mean that. I'm still a good person. That's there's something going on. That person is free to attack you again. And you can be pushed off balance and kept off balance by somebody who is skilled in the act of words, verbals, while you're being pushed into an emotional corner. But afterwards, when they've left and you're quiet and all the world settles down, you get your zen back, you come up with all the snappy comebacks you should have said at that time. But you can't ever think of them in the moment. And that's because you're busy doing emotional processing. And if you find yourself in this situation more than you like, I have some advice for you. And that's, you're not going to easily, you, you can improve, this is a skill that can be taught and learned by the way, to, to talk back to people even as they're attacking you emotionally. Um, but you're not gonna get it right away without a lot of effort. So have some words ready that you can say without thinking, without having to come up with words. So this is a practice thing you do in a mirror, and it's really easy. I need space. I'm going away. <laughs> and shut off that conversation and walk away from it. You told them what they needed to hear, what you needed for them to know that you need some space to think about it, and you need to get away because while the words are hammering your head, you're never gonna come up with the right comeback or even the right, any kind of response at all. You need to get away and get to a nonverbal place and settle down. And then you can come up with the right conversation to have, the right words to come back with. So recognize is the first step toward improving this. Well, thank you. Thank you. That I think, uh, I think that is uh, generally applicable outside of outside of your code sucks it's a general situation that you can find yourself yes. in and uh I, I i use it in a lot of uh, the examples i give don't have anything to do with code but they do but they don't it's fine i, I like i said I, I i do this for i do it with a class and i do it with a I've done it with a keynote speech a bunch of times now last two three years it's been a very popular keynote speech and it, you know the, the the final tagline, you know, is it's, it's uh, self awareness for introverts and why programmers suck at salary negotiations. Oh, I think I've seen that. Uh, yeah, go, because go the first comment out of the HR person is, "So, how much do you need?" And now you're <laughs> thinking, "Why is my self worth being judged by a number? How mm -hmm. much do I need? Wait a second, I need the job. No, and you're doing emotional processing immediately. I mean, just so." Just being in that situation is uh, <laughs> you've already you've already right. Lost. So so instead you avoid the situation, but then you still practice it. So you suck when it comes up again every time salaries get negotiated. For instance, <laughs> I see you're like I see it on your face, dude. The video is still rolling here. You you are like oh this is me. Oh damn. <laughs> oh no. I mean I've, it's it's a it's a situation I think everybody is familiar with. Uh -huh, you know. Uh huh. Uh huh. But. Think, uh, so it's the, the good news is that you can get better at it, and the bad news is you have to practice. It's a practice thing. 
you're going to be off guard until you're not. So Until you're not, yeah. Until you've learned to see the punch coming and learn to take it. And the punch can be very mild, very, very nice. Like an HR person says, hi, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. So why do you want this job? And you're a little off guard. And then it's, you know, what do you think you're worth? Oh, now you're really <laughs> off guard. It can be very nice, but you're still off guard. And now you suck at the negotiation process because you're off guard. Because you're off balance. Fine. Yeah, I live in the South. Sometimes the, the, the punches are pretty sweet here. They're sugary <laughs> sweets. <laughs> good, good, good. It can well, be a nice. It can be a nice one. Well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for uh -huh. taking time to to talk with me, talk with our listeners. Um, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to talk to you, Cliff. Thanks yeah, again. Yeah, fun. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. We're a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We're here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Cliff Click. You can find Cliff on Twitter at at Cliff underbar Click. That's at sign C-L-I-F-F -F underbar C-L-I-C-K. Our host this week was Gotti Shaban, who is at Smash the Past, spells just like it sounds, on Twitter. Episode cover art is by me, Russ Olson, and is based on every concert poster I've ever seen. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jared Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is by Ben Camphouse, who produces music as Pattern Shift. Look for him on any of the major streaming services. I'm Russ Olson, and do take care of yourself and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening.